So uh, last month, Elon Musk was in the news. Some of you probably saw this. He held a launch event for his company Neuralink, which has been for the last several years a largely secretive project. Um, the company works on BCIs, or implantable brain computer interfaces, using very thin electrode threads to, um, that are inserted into the brain. And one of the things that Musk revealed at this launch event was that this, te this technology had allowed a monkey to uh, control a computer using its mind alone. <clears throat> um, so in the short term, this technology is going to have largely pragmatic uses. It's poised to help um, people who have, for example, de degenerative diseases like Parkinson's. Um, but Musk, uh, being the future-minded person that he is, has already hinted that he has more ambitious long-term objectives for this technology. So um, in interviews, he's talked about how in the future, Neuralink will allow us to have superhuman cognition, that we'll be able to upload any information to our brains instantaneously, we'll have flawless memories. Um, in a well-publicized interview last year, he said um, that Neuralink would basically allow people to create a copy of themselves so that part of their mind could live on digitally even after their body dies. Um, he said, and, and this is a direct quote from the interview, um, if your biological self dies, you can upload into a new unit, literally. So, um, you know, mind uploading, digital immortality, the merging of human brains with AI, these are ideas that we've been discussing that have kind of been in the air for the past several decades. Up until very recently, though, they were largely theoretical. So um, people tend to associate concepts like these with transhumanists who are regarded in our culture as something akin to modern-day prophets, right? These, these visionaries who rely on some mysterious mix of esoteric knowledge and speculation to tell us what the future is going to be like. Um, so today, um, instead of talking about the technologies themselves, I want to go back to the theory behind the practice, so to speak, um, and talk about transhumanism and its origins in Western thought. We tend to think of transhumanism as a modern word, um, one that's grown out of contemporary technologies. But the word transhuman uh, actually first appeared in the 14th century. And it wasn't in a scientific text, it was actually in a religious work, in Dante's The Divine Comedy. Uh, in book one of the Paradiso, there's the moment where Dante is ascending to heaven with Beatrice. And as he gets closer and closer to God, he begins to notice that his body is undergoing this strange transformation. He doesn't really have the language to describe what's happening, um, just because it's, it's so unlike anything a human being has ever experienced. And the word that Dante uses to describe this transformation is transhumanar. Um, he basically made up an entirely new word, one that had never been used before in any language. Um, just to underscore the singularity of this experience. Um, when the book was translated into English in 1814, Henry Francis Carey, uh, the English translator, chose to translate that word as transhuman, hyphenated. Uh, so the line reads, uh, words may not tell of that transhuman change. And, and that's the first time that the word transhuman appeared in the English language. Dante, in this passage, 
is dramatizing the resurrection, the moment when according to Christian prophecies, the dead are gonna rise from their graves and those who are still living are gonna become immortal. So it's a moment when humans as a whole are going to cease being human essentially and become something else, something closer to God's. So um, this is a photo of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. A uh, little bit of my backstory, which I think Joanna alluded to. Um, <clears throat> before, I wanted, before I became a writer, um, I wanted to go into Christian ministry. And I spent two years at this school studying theology. Um, Moody, within the evangelical world, is known unofficially, its, its nickname is the West Point of Christian Service after the military academy. Um, so the idea was that we were like soldiers right, being trained to go to battle for God. So um, Joanna mentioned that, that religion is a very private thing in Sweden. For us, it was not. We believed it was our, our duty to tell the world we would go out and do street evangelism and things like this. Um, and, and I want to stress too, you know, there's plenty of Christians, just as a side note, um, you know, there's plenty of Christians in the U.S. and obviously throughout the world who read the Bible as a collection of metaphors or as myth. Um, Moody was not that kind of place. So um, when it said, for example, in Genesis, that the world was created in six days, we took that very literally to mean six 24-hour periods. And when it said similarly in Revelation that Christ was going to return and the dead would be raised, um, we took that as a very literal description of what was gonna happen in the final days. Um, according to this version of Christianity that I was taught, all of history was a single unified story moving toward a point of redemption. So time um, going back all the way to creation and then um, extending into our era could be divided up into successive stages or what we call dispensations by which God revealed his truth. So there was a dispensation of innocence starting in the Garden of Eden, followed by the dispensation of conscience, the dispensation of government, and so on. Uh, it was a cumulative story. Each era was building on the one that came before. And we believe that God was revealing more and more of his plan with each successive period. Um, so we believe that we are living in the dispensation of grace, which was the penultimate era, um, which would immediately precede the uh, Christ's return and the resurrection. And um, for us as Christians, the, the resurrection was really our primary hope. Um, I, I should probably clarify what I mean by resurrection. I think there's a common um, misperception today that the Christian soul is supposed to fly up to heaven immediately after death. This is actually biblically inaccurate. So um, according to the New Testament, the, the resurrection just happens once at the end of history. So for centuries, uh, Christians believed that basically everybody who had ever died was being held in their graves in a state of suspended animation waiting to be brought back to life. Um, and it wasn't just the dead who were gonna be raised at this point. Um, believers who were still living were going to be raptured, so taken up into the clouds and given glorified bodies. Um, the Apostle Paul believed that this was the point at which the mortal human form was gonna become transformed into something like the body of God himself. 
um, Augustine, interestingly, St. Augustine, uh, wrote about how after the resurrection, we were gonna have superhuman intelligence. So we'd have, we'd have access to what he called universal knowledge. We'd be able to know any fact, any information without any study or effort. Um, the earth itself was also going to be resurrected in a sense, um, returned to its perfect original state. So all the curses of the fall, going back to Adam, death, pain, degeneration, were gonna be reversed. Um, and Christ at that point would ret return to earth to rule over the utopian earth for a thousand year period, which we called the millennial kingdom. Um, and everyone would be able to eat from the tree of life, which grants immortality. So this has obviously been a really powerful uh, formative idea in the Western world, um, influencing things, for example, like burial practices. Um, for centuries, it was believed that you had to bury a person in one place in the ground with the, the corpse's feet facing east so that he could rise to greet God on the day of resurrection. Um, in England, actually, up until the early 19th century, um, it was illegal to dissect or dismember a corpse, even for scientific purposes, um, because Christians were convinced that you needed an intact body in order, in order to be resurrected. Um, in fact, the only bodies that you could um, <clears throat> dissect legally were those of convicted murderers. Um, presumably because they were going to hell anyway, I guess was the logic. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Christians throughout the ages, starting with Paul and the, the first century Christians, were convinced that the, these prophecies were going to be fulfilled within their lifetime. Um, and, and this was true of myself, too, and most of my fellow students at, at Moody. We, you know, believed that we were going to live to see these things happen, that we were going to become immortal without ever tasting death. So two years into my studies uh, at Moody, I had what people sometimes call a faith crisis. Um, I started having doubts about this whole story, about the legitimacy of this story. And um, after a period of struggle, uh, I ended up leaving Moody. I, I dropped out of Bible school and I stopped believing in God. And for me, this was a really dark time initially. Um, you know, I was living alone in Chicago. I was working nights at a bar and uh, was really just struggling to find some sense of meaning apart from this Christian redemption story. Um, I had believed for my entire life that my body was a holy vessel destined for eternity. Um, you know, and if, I, if it was true I wasn't immortal, then what was I? Uh, who was I, and, and moreover, where was history going? Um, I think probably the most difficult thing for me to come to terms with, like even more than the idea that God didn't exist, was this idea that history was just pointless. But we weren't headed for redemption, you know, we were all just victims of, of entropy waiting around for death. Around this time, uh, a friend of mine gave me a copy of Ray Kurzweil's book, The Age of Spiritual Machines. Um, I didn't really know anything about the book before I started reading it. I didn't know, for example, that Kurzweil was one of the leading transhumanists of the world. I didn't know what transhumanism was. Um, I had spent the last two years studying theology and hermeneutics, and I didn't really know 
anything about technology. Um, but I started to read, to read the book and I became completely engrossed in it. I became obsessed with it, in fact. And um, in retrospect, I think one of the things that I found so compelling about the book was that Kurzweil also had this very broad, totalizing view of history. He divided all of evolution into successive epochs. Um, so there was the epoch of physics and chemistry, the epoch of biology, the epoch of brains. Uh, he believed we were living in the fifth epoch, <clears throat> which is when human intelligence begins to merge with machines. Um, and soon we were going to reach the singularity, which is uh, basically when computing power becomes so advanced, it leads to an intelligence explosion. So some radical transformation beyond what we can currently conceive of and imagine. Um, and Kurzweil believed that this was going to happen around the year 2045. So at that point, um, assuming that we as humans were merged with technology, we too were going to undergo a radical transformation. We were going to become post-human, or what Kurzweil called spiritual machines. So we'd be able, for example, to upload uh, or transfer our consciousness to supercomputers, allowing us to live forever. Our bodies would become incorruptible, immune to disease and decay. Uh, we'd resurrect the dead as, as digital avatars and use nanotechnology to remake the Earth into paradise. And then eventually we were going to migrate into space and terraform other planets. So sounds kind of familiar, right? <laughs> um, you know, when I think back on this period of my life, it's, it's, it's strange to me that I wasn't more skeptical of these promises. Um, this is essentially the Christian redemption story dressed up in technological jargon. Um, but I think one of the reasons that uh, I found it more convincing was because it, there was all this, you know, presumably all this science behind it. There was data, there was charts, there was detailed information about, you know, neural circuits and nanobots and non-biological substrates. Um, the Christian redemption story, you know, relied mostly on ancient prophecies, uh, but transhumanist speculations about the future often deferred to Moore's law, which seemed like this inexorable force of nature that was going to ensure that computing power kept advancing and technology kept advancing at an exponential rate. It seemed very difficult to argue with. Um, you know, I think another reason why I failed to, to realize the religious connotations of these ideas is that most of the transhumanists I read um, were adamant, even vehement atheists. Um, they claimed that they were carrying on the legacy of, of the Enlightenment, that their ideology was rooted in empiricism and uh, reason. In fact, a lot of transhumanists um, have claimed that religion, and Christianity in particular, is the biggest obstacle to the implementation of their ideas. Um, Zoltan Istvan, the founder of the Transhumanist Party in the US, wrote an entire novel called The Transhumanist Wager, uh, based on the idea that it was going to be fundamentalist religious fanatics who would oppose the coming cybernetic revolution. Um, so in any case, this, this began for me about a year-long obsession with transhumanism and other speculative technological theories. And it wasn't until many years later that I was able to realize that these were essentially Christian ideas. Um, 
a few years ago, I started to write an essay about this experience. And as part of that essay, I became curious about the lineage of transhumanism and whether these resonances with Christian theology were coincidental. Um, and what I learned is that since the medieval period, there has, um, in fact, existed a tradition of Christians who believe that the biblical prophecies could happen or be accomplished through science and technology. So Christians, in other words, who not only failed to see the resurrection as a metaphor, but who believed that humans had a role in helping to bring it about or even had a spiritual mandate to bring it about. First efforts of this sort were taken up by alchemists, um, and I'm just going to discuss one alchemist today, Roger Bacon. He is um, widely regarded as the first Western scientist. He was a 13th century uh, friar. And Bacon devoted himself uh, to several years to trying to concoct an elixir that would mimic the effects of the resurrected body as described in the New Testament. So this potion that he imagined would, would grant whoever took it immortality and would give them the four dowries of the resurrected body, um, which include luminosity, travel at the speed of thought, the ability to pass through physical matter, and freedom from suffering. Needless to say, he didn't succeed. Um, but a lot of uh, other alchemists of the same era, most of them Benedictine and Franciscan friars, were similarly inspired by Christian prophecy to try to create an elixir of life. The next thinker I want to discuss is Nikolai Fedorov. Uh, Fedorov was a Russian Orthodox ascetic. Um, and in the late 19th century, he came to believe that it was humanity's duty to bring about the resurrection, basically to resurrect everyone who had ever died. And he called this the common task. <clears throat> Throughout his life, he wrote extensively about how science and technology could help bring about this common task. Um, of the resurrection, he wrote, this day will be divine, awesome, but not miraculous, for resurrection will be a task not of miracle, but of knowledge and common labor. So this is a theme common to all of the thinkers I'm gonna to discuss today. Um, they all believed that the resurrection could happen naturalistically, so without any miracles or divine intervention. When it came to the actual science of resurrection, um, Fedorov's ideas were kind of primitive, but I think they were also in many ways prescient. Um, at one point in his writings, he argued that the universe was full of dust that had been left behind by our ancestors. And he believed that one day scientists would be able to gather up this dust and use it to resurrect the dead. Um, a lot of scholars have noted this is very similar to our modern understanding of DNA. Um, and in fact, transhumanists have often argued that we can one day resurrect people using the genetic information that they've left behind. Um, <clears throat> Fedorov attracted a lot of followers during his lifetime. He, um, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky were both interested in his ideas and maintained correspondence with him. And after he died, his theories went on to inspire this whole movement called Russian Cosmism that flourished um, in the first half of the 20th century and went on to help inspire the Soviet space program. So I have one more thinker I want to discuss, 
um, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Teilhard was a French Jesuit priest and paleontologist, um, and he believed that evolution and the evolution of technology um, in particular was going to eventually lead to the kingdom of God. So in the 1950s, um, he proposed that in the future, all the machines of the world were gonna be linked in this vast global network. Um, he basically predicted the rise of the internet in the 1950s. Um, and he believed that over time, this network was gonna allow all human minds to merge with one another. Um, eventually, this unification of consciousness was gonna lead to an intelligence explosion, which he called the Omega Point. Um, and this was the point at which humanity was going to essentially break through the material framework of time and space and merge seamlessly with the divine. So the Omega Point is the obvious precursor to Kurzweil's singularity. Um, but in Teilhard's mind, this was how the resurrection was going to take place. You know, he believed that Christ was guiding evolution to this final point of glorification um, so that humans could merge with God in, in a form of eternal perfection. Um, at this point, after the Omega Point, Teilhard believed that humans would no longer be human. Um, he said that once we emerged with God, it would mark not an ending of the ultra-human, but its accession to some sort of transhumanity at the ultimate heart of things. So cle clearly the priest knew his Dante. Um, okay, so this is where it gets interesting. Julian Huxley, the British evolutionary biologist, was a close friend of Teilhard's. Um, and he was fascinated with the priest's ideas. But Huxley was a secular humanist, so he didn't believe in God or the resurrection or any of that. <clears throat> Later on in the 1950s, um, Huxley started basically expanding on the priest's ideas in his own writing. But the ideas were completely shorn of their religious context, their religious illusions. In 1957, um, Huxley gave a lecture that proposed a non-religious version of the Omega Point. And he said in this lecture, we need a name for this new belief. Perhaps transhumanism will serve. So if you read anything about the history of transhumanism or the etymology of the word, most people tend to point to this speech as the first time the word was used, this Huxley's lecture. Occasionally, Tehar gets mentioned in passing, but most people completely ignore the reference in Dante and the whole lineage of these ideas. Um, in fact, I would argue that transhumanists have deliberately suppressed this history because um, acknowledging it would essentially amount to you know, admitting that their philosophy is an outgrowth of Christian eschatology. Um, so why is this relevant? You could argue on one hand that a lot of secular philosophies have religious origins, and you know, in this regard, transhumanism is not particularly unique. Um, I tend to think this history is important uh, for a number of reasons. For one thing, I think there's something uniquely seductive about transhumanism that goes beyond the actual science undergirding the ideas, um, such that people who are otherwise you know, very rational and scientifically minded are willing to endorse these speculative scenarios like mind uploading 
or digital immortality that far exceed our current understanding of human consciousness or the capacity of machines. Um, you know, just as I felt a deep loss when I left behind my faith, I think all of us in the Western world are to some extent still dealing with the effects of secularization. Um, you know, for centuries, we believed that we had the potential for divinity within us, that we would be immortal, and then we just stopped believing this. And this happened, um, you know, at least in the United States, in a remarkably brief period of time, historically speaking, in about the past 100 years or so. Um, now scientists tell us that our bodies are inert machines, um, Philosophers like Daniel Dennett love to remind us that our minds are just collections of unconscious agents, that our self, our sense of identity, um, our you know, subjective awareness is just an illusion. I know from my experience how difficult it is um, to accept these ideas after believing otherwise, and how hungry one can become for a new ideology that's going to replace the old one. And I think, um, you know, to some extent, all of us in the modern world are in this position. I believe what makes the transhumanist movement so seductive, and this is a direct quote from my writing on the subject, um, what makes the transhumanist movement so seductive is that it promises to restore through science the transcendent hopes that science itself obliterated. Um, I also tend to believe that this desire for transcendence, uh, and this is another reason why I think the history is important. I think this desire for transcendence, which is essentially a religious impulse, um, often ends up coloring our scientific theories and the metaphors we choose when we're drawing larger observations from, from scientific research. So um, as we saw with Neuralink, Elon Musk's company, transhumanist ideas are already being integrated into current and emerging technologies. Um, they've also made inroads into theories of consciousness. So um, this, this past month, I actually read a stack of new books on consciousness for a magazine assignment. And more than half the authors I read argued that mind uploading in some form was going to be possible in the near future. Um, some argued in as, as soon as 30 years from now. And the thing about mind uploading is that it necessarily depends on you know, some form of mind-body dualism, the idea that consciousness can exist independently of the body or can be transferred onto some sort of non-biological substrate like a supercomputer. Um, Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil has argued that human consciousness is just a pattern of information and that this pattern can be programmed theoretically into a computer. Um, other theories of consciousness believe that, you know, consciousness arises from complexity, that um, eventually, you know, the theory goes that uh, whole, brains, whole brain emulation or other forms of brain uh, simulation are going to match that complexity, and consciousness is somehow going to mysteriously arise from those networks. So. On one hand, you know, nobody's saying that we have an immortal soul, uh, in the scientific world at least, um, but it's not difficult to see how these theories satisfy that same essentially religious desire for transcendence. Um, you know, even saying that consciousness is a pattern 
suggests that there is somewhere in the meat of our bodies uh, some essential spark that's going to remain unspoiled as we age, uh, or that might even survive death. And this is not, by the way, my, my own unique criticism of transhumanism. Um, you know, a lot of people have critiqued these ideas um, based on the idea that they, they depend on some form of Cartesian dualism, right? The idea that there's some ghost in the machine, um, that there's some Im immaterial essence um, within us that can survive death. What's interesting to me, because um, of my background, is that a lot of these conversations about uh, mind uploading and dualism mirror almost exactly the theological debates that were happening among the early church fathers about the resurrection. So throughout the early centuries of Christianity, theologians went back and forth about whether the resurrection was going to be spiritual with just the soul ascending to heaven or whether the entire body was going to be resurrected. Um, the Gnostics and other Neoplatonic schools believed that only the soul was going to survive death. Um, and then there was this other faction of Christians who insisted that the resurrection was not a true resurrection unless the entire body was revived. And it was actually this latter faction of believers whose ideas eventually became orthodox. So unlike Hellenistic philosophy, um, which taught that the afterlife was gonna be mostly spiritual and disembodied, Christians came to believe that the soul and the body were inseparable, that the body and soul were just one intact, indivisible unit. Um, Tertullian of Carthage wrote in his famous treatise on the resurrection, if God raises not men entire, he raises not the dead. Thus our flesh shall remain even after the resurrection. This doctrine, however, raised uh, all, a whole host of anxieties and, and further debate about how exactly God was gonna resurrect certain types of bodies. So um, a, a lot of these debates were happening during a period of Christian persecution. And some theologians ventured to ask the inevitable question, well, what about Christians who have been eaten by lions? You know, not only were their bodies torn apart, but part of their flesh had uh, presumably been consumed by the lion and become part of the lion's body. So was God then going to resurrect the lion at the end of time, or was part of the martyr's flesh gonna be regurgitated? Um, how is this gonna work? Theologians, it's, it's wonderful to go back and read some of these debates. Theologians were much more uh, technically and logistically minded than, than they are now. So this, this was called the problem of reassemblage, and it was essentially a problem of identity. Uh, you know, the question, the, the, the relevant question was, you know, is the resurrected body the same body that lived on Earth, and is there going to be a continuity of consciousness and a continuity of identity across that divide? So in other words, when you get to heaven with your new body, are you still gonna have your memories, your subjective awareness? Are you gonna know that you're you? This is very similar to a lot of conversations that are happening about mind uploading and sort of the philosophical problems that are involved in mind uploading. Um, you know, if the pattern of your consciousness is transferred onto a computer, is that pattern really you? Or is it just a simulation of your mind? Or is it some entirely new form of consciousness? Um, likewise, you know, if you were to transfer your consciousness to, say, an Android or a digital avatar while you're still alive, 
um, would you then exist in two places at once, or how would that work? Um, some transhumanists have tried to avoid the whole problem of dualism by focusing on whole body resurrection, much as the early church fathers did, um, through things like cryogenics or through bionics by, you know, for example, replacing individual parts of the body with technology in order to extend life indefinitely. Um, but even with bionics, you know, the problem of continuity arises. There's a, a famous problem um, you know, if you were to replace every organ of your body, including all the parts in your mind, with synthetic versions one by one, at what point would that disrupt your continuity of consciousness? At what point would you become uh, someone else um, and not yourself? So for someone like me uh, who studied theology, it's, it's difficult not to feel a little deja vu when reading these conversations. Um, and, and in many cases, the, the transhumanists are you know, discussing these ideas as though they're the first ones who have ever considered them. Okay, so, so far, just to sum up, um, I've been trying to, dis to suggest that there's more than a casual relationship between Christianity and transhumanism. Both, um, as we've seen, rely on this totalizing view of history that's linear and progressive, and both promise that some form of subjective consciousness can persist after death. So hopefully these resonances have been convincing thus far, because this is where the relationship becomes even more deeply entangled. Um, transhumanists even have their own cosmology, one that is very similar to religious creation myths. So when I was uh, still a new atheist, around the time I was reading Ray Kurzweil, I came across Nick Bostrom's famous article, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? Um, Bostrom's an Oxford philosopher, and in 2003 he published this article which uses mathematical probabilities to argue that it's likely that we are currently living in a matrix-like simulation of the past created by our post-human descendants. Um, so, on one hand, this theory intersects in interesting ways with discoveries in quantum physics. Um, you know, the holographic principle proposes that everything we experience as three-dimensional actually arises from a flat two-dimensional field. So there's obvious corollaries here with how, for example, video games or virtual reality functions. Um, Elon Musk, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and other public figures have um, admitted to being fans of the theory or even claim that they believe we're living in a simulated universe. Um, so the theory's gotten a lot of attention in recent years in, in the media. What this is, though, essentially is an argument from design, right? Um, it's like transhumanism, it's totally naturalistic. It's pended with mathematical calculations. There's no appeal to, you know, miracle or anything supernatural. But it is a form of creationism. Um, Bostrom argues in his article that, um, you know, the, the programmers or the engineers, whoever's running the simulation, are effectively like gods compared to those of us who are embedded in the model. Uh, he also talks about how the theory allows for the possibility of an afterlife. So uh, if we're just software, you know, it's possible that after we die, we could be transferred or resurrected in another simulation. Um, or the programmers could, if they so wish, um, 
you know, promote us to their level of reality, base reality. Um, at Bible school, I, one of the things I studied was theodicies, or the problem of evil, which is, um, you know, basically the problems usually, usually formulated like, uh, if God is both benevolent and omnipotent, then how does evil exist, or why does evil exist? <clears throat> so as soon as I read about this theory, I immediately became curious about how those arguments would play out in a simulated universe. You know, could we reasonably assume that the programmers are omniscient, omnipotent, benevolent? Computers, you know, sometimes got bugs that even eluded their, their programmers, so what if evil was just a glitch in the matrix? As it turns out, um, fans of this theory were already way ahead of me. So uh, a number of writers and academics, most of them with religious and, and philosophical backgrounds, have written uh, what they call simulation theology. And it's basically articles that explore traditionally religious questions through the lens of the simulation hypothesis. So according uh, to the the argument for virtuous engineers, this was um, created by the writer Eric Steinhardt, it's basically a theodicy. Um, we can reasonably assume that the engineers running the simulation uh, are virtuous because creating sophisticated technology requires long-term stability. Long-term stability can only be achieved um, in a culture of social harmony. And social harmony is only possible um, if we're dealing with virtuous persons. So I could go on and on about simulation theology, <laughs> but um, I guess the larger point I want to draw from this is that for me, it's hard not to feel like we've come full circle as a culture, that this whole quest of the Enlightenment has essentially returned us to a place of religious speculation. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion on this point in recent years, just beyond transhumanism and the things that I'm discussing today. Um, I'm thinking in particular of James Bridle's book, The New Dark Ages, in which he argues that uh, science and technology, basically these enterprises that were supposed to enlighten us, have actually made the world more opaque and have returned us to a, a, a place of superstition and blind faith. And I would add to that that, you know, in times of darkness or uncertainty, the metaphors we grasp for most readily, the narratives that we defer to, are usually those that are very familiar to us. Um, before I wrap up, I just wanted to mention as a, as a side note, um, <clears throat> so it's not just the secular scientific community that's interested in these ideas. Um, in a weird example of history coming full circle, Christians have recently become very interested in transhumanism. Um, so there is currently in the US a Christian Transhumanist Association, uh, and it's comprised of evangelicals who believe that the uh, prophecies of the Bible are going to be accomplished through science and technology. Um, I actually met with one of the board members of the CTA when I was researching my article, and uh, he's, a, he's a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. It's like one of the best seminaries in the US. And the title of his dissertation was The Eschaton is Technological, which I thought was great. Um, there's also a Mormon Transhumanist Association. 
the Mormons are actually much larger and more well-organized than, than the Christian transhumanists. Um, Mormon, uh, Mormonism has as part of their, their doctrine is this idea of exaltation, which in some versions of the faith teaches that humans after they die can become like gods. So there's obvious parallels there um, with transhumanism. And, you know, I'm really eager to see how religion changes and evolves as these ideas become more integrated in our culture. Um, I think it's inevitable that a lot of these, you know, technologies and these theories are going to become reabsorbed into religion. So I mentioned that um, I wrote an article, an essay, about my experience with transhumanism. Um, that essay was published in M Plus One, the literary journal, and then it was later on reprinted in The Guardian, where it found a wider audience. And uh, one of the most bizarre things that came out of this experience is that I got an email from Ray Kurzweil. He said that he read the article and he enjoyed it, and he said something in his email to me that really stuck with me, and I'm going to quote part of it here with his permission. He basically said that both science and religion depend on metaphors, and that questions of ultimate meaning, so existential questions, um, are always going to rely on metaphor because they deal with concepts that go beyond our, our understanding of science, or sorry, our understanding of matter and energy, so things we have access to as humans. Um, and he said the difference between so-called atheists and people who believe in God is a matter of the choice of metaphor. <clears throat> and we could not get through our lives without having, a, having to choose metaphors for transcendent questions. I love this um, idea of metaphor, and, and particularly the fact that he, you know, acknowledged that science also uses metaphor. Um, you know, we say that the brain is like a computer, or that consciousness is like a virtual interface, like our computer desktop. Um, and we've done this throughout history, you know, just as Isaac Newton believed that the universe was a giant mechanistic clock, because that was the latest technology of his time. We tend to talk about the cosmos as an enormous information processing device. Metaphors are actually, um, you know, they're obviously useful um, and maybe even foundational to our ability to think, to reason, to communicate with one another. You know, we arguably could not do science without differing to metaphors. Um, I'm actually in the process of writing a book right now about the relationship between uh, new technologies and religion and myth. And one of the themes of this book is the role of metaphor in science. And something I've been thinking about a lot lately is when does a metaphor stop being a metaphor? Or when do we forget that we're using metaphors? My experience with religion has taught me that literalism uh, or fundamentalism, fundamentalism hap is basically a confusion of metaphor with literal truth. And I think a similar danger exists in science, that science can it itself become a form of fundamentalism when we forget that we're using metaphor or when we forget that we have a choice about what metaphor to use. So with that, I'm gonna wrap up. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much. I have so many questions. 
uh, and ideas and reflections. And of course, I would love to take a question from the audience as well. So I'll try to limit myself uh, to something manageable, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I was very struck by this idea that the people seriously feel that virtual, that, that, um, that a very sort of advanced technology would imply a virtuous person. Mm -hmm. And it does strike me that the people, I mean, implicit in that, of course, is that the more high-tech you are today or the more the more at the cutting edge of, of sciences you are today, the more virtuous you are yourself. Mm -hmm. So for people who believe in this, it's a rather self-congratulatory <laughs> argument, yes. uh, I find. Um, and it, it worries me, much like the simulated universe worries me. And I'm, now I wonder if this is my sort of internalized Christianity, but if the, if the end is already decided, I have no responsibility for the outcome, so I can basically just relax and let the programmers handle it. <laughs> and I don't think that's a great strategy right now. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely an element of, um, I would say, technological determinism in it, right? This idea that, like you said, the future's already decided. Um, you know, and I think that's something that is, shares in common between transhumanist ideas, particularly these versions I'm talking about today, and Christianity is this, this idea that history is on a steady trajectory and that, you know, no matter what we do, it's going to go there. And I think this argument in, I mean, less extreme forms is often deferred to when we're talking about, um, you know, new technologies. Like I remember when Google Glass came out, you know, people were worried about privacy or, you know, what happens when this is inside our brains? What's the next step? And in many cases, the argument was like, oh, well, this is where history is going. You know, we, we don't need to have these conversations. This is the next thing. And it turned out that was not the next thing. But um, yeah, I, I see a lot of that, I think, just in the larger culture as it's, well. It, this whole talk has made it so visible to me that we really are in that, that, how stuck we are inside the narrative that everything ultimately gets better because so many things have gotten better. So we, it's very difficult to believe in an outcome where we would fail as mm -hmm. a species, which unfortunately is still a possible outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very shocking. Let's take a question from the room if, if we have one. Let's see, do us, has anybody? Is anybody bursting with a question right here? So, so oh, first of all, thanks. This was amazing. Uh, but Megan, what, what sort of what metaphor do you subscribe to now? I mean, you've lost the kind of <laughs> Christian metaphor, and the, like you've looked at the transhumanist metaphor. So, like, uh -huh. wh which camp are you in now, or in no camp? Uh, I I think as a writer, I have access to all metaphors. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a, that's a great question, though. Just, um, you know, I don't know about personally if I have another um, metaphor. You know, I think one thing I've become aware of is just how much the Christian narrative is embedded in the larger culture. So, like, even when we're talking about, apart from technology, even just the idea of, of progress, the idea that history is going somewhere, you know, people have argued that that idea got into Western culture from Christianity, which is, you know, introduced this idea of messianism. Mm -hmm. Before that earlier, you know, Hebrew thought, before the entrance of messianic Hebrewism, um, you know, believed like the Greeks, like Eastern philosophy, that history was circular. So I don't know if we can get away from these metaphors, you know, even when you leave behind something explicit like Christianity, um, you know, there's still, I think, residue of it or resonances in the larger world. And I think, you know, what I'm interested in as a writer is like calling attention to those things. Um, but yeah, I guess there's a bigger question there is like, what do we, what do we replace it with? If, if this is problematic or if we decide that it's problematic, you know, where do we go next? And um, 
that's the discussion I guess I hope that we would be willing to have as a culture. And I guess, I mean, one of the answers to that is that it, we can have all the good outcomes if we work for them. I mean, that that, that mm -hmm. if humans commit themselves to these causes, wanting to have the great outcome is a great narrative. Like, that's a great metaphor to, to work towards, to say, mm -hmm. okay, but, but justice, we're going to fight for this, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's just, yeah. Oh, it, I, I, I think I'm not the only person who got their brain rattled in the last hour, which is wonderful. Uh, I think we don't have time for another question. Thank you so, so much. And Thank you'll you be so around for a, for a while so we can talk yes, to you uh, in definitely. the breaks and so on. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Megan O'Givlin. Thank you.